Greetings from the Mirror Zone. I'm Bryce Skidmore. And I'm David Leskin. And we are here with a very special episode. I hope you're hungry and uh, brought your doggy bag because we brought back treats for you. We did. And you don't know it yet, but you brought the treats as well. That's right. Um, this week we're going to be starting our uh, first part of our Japanese science fiction episodes. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this one. Um, do you want to go a little bit into the backstory of how we ended up on this? Absolutely. Uh, it was it in playing around with our uh, metrics on SoundCloud. I noticed that we had um, uh, one week we had a, a bunch of viewer or a bunch of listeners. We can call them viewers. We can I'm call okay them viewers. With viewers. I mean, yeah, you, you look at the icon right when you when you're when you're listening to a podcast. At least I do. I, I never break eye contact. <laughs> I'm worried about what'll happen if I don't. Yeah, my eye. Yeah. Eyes locked on, you know, with us it would be like, you know, you just lock onto the backs of the heads of those spacemen. It's really disturbing. We try not to read stuff in the same room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or listen to podcasts in the same room either, apparently. Yeah. But uh, we um, we decided after that uptick that we wanted to have um, a dive into a culture of science fiction that neither of us have had much experience with. Um Luskin, what's what's been your experience with Japanese science fiction? Mostly manga, anime, um, some Japanese films. Uh, I, I can't think of any short stories, certainly, much less full science fiction books. No, and it's I love that in terms of short stories, like how I mean, of course, short stories is a it's a very hard uh, industry to be in um, since the nineteen thirties. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, like there, there's a couple of heydays for short stories, but they're definitely kind of over. But like, um, we both have the same, uh, the same edition of the best Jap- Japanese science fiction short stories. Yes. Uh, Leskin's got the hardcover, but I have the paperback with the, uh, analog science fiction review, uh, quote, buy it in all capitals, <laughs> buy it in such quantities that the editors and publishers will bring us more. So, like, already just, imp- I feel like the, the sales thing is, like, you need to buy this because these are good stories, and if we don't buy this, then we might not get more. I mean, damn, that's a good review, though. <laughs> it is. Very good. Unfortunately, this is the only one that they've done. Yeah. But it's still good. Uh, and I think that we're also not discussing the elephant in the room, which is obviously I've seen Godzilla. Yeah. Like, that's my... Yeah. You know, kaiju and giant robots... Uh, the two of those things are probably my largest experience. I've seen a lot of Toho films, mm. uh, you know, and, and I think it fits perfectly into uh, getting into this this book of short stories that we got into because I, I definitely could feel the weight of what I didn't know on uh, after reading this. Yeah, no, it's a... Uh, because I'm in a very similar boat to you on this. Uh, in terms of Japanese science fiction, my knowledge until recently has been just restricted to kaiju movies and, yep. and mecha movies. Um, what was it? Uh, other than that, like, I've done some reading on, like, uh, a work that was coming out at, this, at a similar time that wasn't science fiction. Mm. I really like the novelist Mishima. Uh, he wrote this really wonderful, like, cycle of novels uh, about these souls that, about this soul that reincarnates and sort of, like, plagues the person who they knew in life. But it's like, yeah, this one soul just keeps sort of like coming back to this one person and, you know, upending everything and reliving these cycles of violence. It's a very fascinating uh, series of novels. And we'll talk more about Mishima later. As far as Japanese film goes, like, I've always been like a huge Akira Kurosawa. Kurosawa, yeah. 
Uh, was it Ron's one of my favorite movies of all time? Uh, I love Throne of Blood. I, I just love it. Yeah, they're all pretty good. Yeah. And also some pretty intense, like, uh, Japanese gangster movies are a lot of fun, too. Yeah. I really liked, I really, I really liked Ichi the Killer, but don't, don't hold that against me. I'm not a psychotic person. I'm very lovely. I just like really crazy movies. As far as I'm concerned, you saying that makes me love you even more. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's very difficult to find people who are, like, into that. It's like finding someone who's, like, you know. It's difficult to find people who've sat through it all the way. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's an intense watch. It's very intense. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, so with that, I think, uh, maybe we talk some about the, uh, the history and development of science fiction. Sure. In, in Japan in specific. Yes. Let's do it. All right. Uh, so there's, um, a, a network of Japanese, like, myths, uh, that sort of played into, uh, an attitude that would have been very receptive to science fiction. There's a couple of stories of, uh, in, uh, Japanese history. Um, one of them is the the tale of Urashima Taro, and it's about a guy who uh, visits like an underwater kingdom and stays for like uh, stays for three days, and then when he returns, he discovers that three hundred years have passed. So that sounds pretty intense. Uh, in the tenth century, there was uh, the tale of the bamboo cutter about a princess from the moon who like is hidden on Earth and is taken in and raised by a bamboo cutter until her space family come back for her. And that's 10th century. Amazing. Uh, there wasn't any really, like, sort of science fiction as we know it specifically until um, 1878 when uh, the first round of Jules Verne's novel started to be published in translated Japanese. Right, which makes sense. I mean, that, that, ten- that was the catalyst for a lot of people's understanding of science fiction. In popular culture. I've only just recently come back around to enjoying Jules Verne. Like, I, I read it when I was a kid, and then I never touched again. And now I've, like... I'm starting to consider the things uh, that I thought were hokey about it, and I kind of want to check it out again. This is a whole other topic for another day, but I would love to have a discussion about um, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, and hard and soft sci-fi, and, and how that's affected the, both of those genres. I would love that. We should definitely do... Put a pin in that one. Those two. Yeah, no, definitely. We're going to save that for later. Yes. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's uh, that's sort of the the lead-up to it. Um, and then we also have the uh, other big thing that happened that we haven't mentioned yet is World War II. Yeah, it, it's definitely got a big influence on sci-fi and culture in general. No, and it's like we at some point we're we are going to do our our episode on um, fascism and science fiction. So we're going to be cover like uh, the the types of things that um, the the Third Reich in Mussolini's Italy uh, sort of brought to science fiction in this really really weird way. Uh, you know, it just sort of it created it created a new framework with which to see the future. Yeah, and I mean it ended up you know, affecting a lot of different cultures, sci-fi, and that if, if you look at some fiction today, you see a lot of this sort of blending of occult uh, fascism and, uh, you know, science. And it works surprisingly well in the sci-fi genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's uh, and the, the science fiction that we're reading today is, um, it's not it's not related to fascism, like, as as it as it occurred in in Europe 
and as it continues to occur in other places. Uh, but it was very much a subject, or it is very much subject to uh, the Japanese people and the way their society was set up and what they believed. Um, the infallibility of their emperor, yes, his his position as head of state, and uh, the sort of uh, the push that they had to industrialize, right. which it made them singular. Right, and and all of those factors, what they ended up at least partially leading to is contributing to personal identity. Uh, like, you know, how are you doing for your country? You know, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and how your identity and relationship to consumption and capitalism, a mm -hmm. lot of these things were defined by World War II. Exactly. And even more so because after the, uh, after the end of the war, after uh, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which already is a singular event in human history, like never before or since has uh, a nuclear weapon been used against a civilian population. And it happened twice, and the United States did it. Like, and after that, after seeing people die in a way that was heretofore unconsidered, um, then to have your company, your country occupied by the United States and to have the culture change even further by what they brought with them. Uh, it was a, the um, era of modern Japanese science fiction began with the influence of paperbacks that the U.S. Occupation Army brought with them after World War II. Um, so this huge push of science fiction was brought in paperback with the, uh, with the occupation force. And then in 1954, uh, Siyun, a Japanese science fiction magazine, was created, uh, but it tanked after one issue. Which is not super surprising, given what the market was like for science fiction at that point. Exactly, it was it was a tough time to, uh, especially financially. Yeah, exactly. There was there was a lot of um, stuff that I read about economic devastation in Japan immediately following the war. Obviously, so I guess even in the fifties, it wasn't really feasible. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, you know, and that also kind of goes into this idea of making yourself useful and not necessarily uh, dealing with things that weren't really necessary, like cheap entertainment, which the mm. West was having similar moral stances about pulp mm. fiction and, and those sorts of things. So there's, yeah. there's a lot of interesting cultural revolution uh, that came along for many countries in the world that were went from treating science fiction as sort of this soft, kind of unnecessary, but, but entertaining thing for the masses yeah. to being more critically acclaimed. Yeah, no, and it's it's a thing that I find super interesting as well because it's one of the uh, when I was researching sort of the the publications that were coming out of Japan at this time, one of the most popular forms was the light novel, L I T E. But it's like it was, it would sort of be like um, as big as like um, a young adult novel type of deal. Like it's short, it's paperback, you can buy it at a newsstand, and it's easily digestible, and you can have a crazy science fiction story in it. Right. And it was like, I think some of the writers that we're going to be dealing with in this, uh, I think, um, maybe it was Kono, I can't remember, but one of them uh, made a lot of money doing light novels. Right, so that's definitely yeah. heavy influence. Yeah, and of course manga came out of this as well. Right, and and out of manga came both the competition between Western and, uh, you know, Japanese comic industry, as well as that never-ending cycle of what people might call cultural appropriation, which is like Kimba the White Lion becomes Simba and the Lion King. Mm -hmm. We have 
I mean, there's tons of examples of it, of, of uh, you know, both cultures sort of adapting interesting things that the other was doing, but doing it in a way that was more meshed with their uh, financial ability. Exactly. No, and it's, uh, I wanted to bring this up too with the comics wars, you know, between like, you know, the mega comics debate. Uh, there's a thing that I thought was funny that um, came up in my reading was just that in terms of uh, the manga versus comics debate, uh, one of the things that I came across was uh, um, a Japanese superhero um, called uh, Agon Bat. Uh, he was in the uh, Kamishi Bai, the sort of Japanese comics that were really popular around the right. time, uh, and then would later become like manga. But like, uh, is it this guy was uh, debuted in 1930? Eight years before Superman. Wow. So Japan had a Superman eight years before we did. Crazy. <laughs> Kim we'll, the White Lion indeed. And no, and we'll put some pictures up on him because this guy looks fucking awesome. Uh, he is... I would love to read about this dude. Ogon Bot. Yeah, he's just like fucking... He looks like Skeletor also. He like, kind of reminds me of depictions of Phantom Loss as well. Yeah. Oh my god. No, we should at some point too, maybe we could do like... a like, towards the end of the series, like, just have us sit down and talk about a Japanese comic. I'd love to. But, and we'll try and find this guy. But, yeah. Um, so that was... Uh, I mean, there's a lot... There's there's a few other differences. Comics... Uh, Western comics tend, tended to be initially more colorful, mm. uh, whereas manga tended to be black and white. Was mm. it, right? No, you're right. And uh, was it there was also just a... Um, Cloud? Scott McCloud, thank you. Yes. Uh, in Understanding Comics, Scott McCloud talks a great deal about sort of um, these differences between Japanese and American comics and right. sort of the, the focus on uh, aspects as opposed to actions, like how how you can use panels to explore the space instead of the actions taking place in those spaces. Yes. Which is, I think, already very subversive, like in terms of sequential art, like not in a bad way, but it's like very like... You know, giving you an exploration of that space as opposed to, like, thinking of the space, the environment as being the thing that's important. Right, the space versus the things in it. Yeah, and it's uh, and that space can rapidly change. And I feel like a lot of the science fiction that we read is like very reflexive of that. I think so. Um, <clears throat> was it science fiction in Japan gained popularity in the '60s? Uh, there was a magazine that they did, a science fiction magazine called Hayakawa which had been continually published since 59, Uchijun, uh, Cosmic Dust, and uh, they started holding annual conventions in 62 for Japanese science fiction, which is really cool. And it they, is very cool. And they even have like an association of science fiction and fantasy writers in Japan that was founded in the 60s, which was, I think that's pretty cool. Especially considering, like, if you look at the history of Comic-Con, which you would I would call the Western bastion of nerddom mm -hmm. uh the first one was 1979 for the premiere of star wars right yeah so that's actually way earlier it really is no so it's they, they were ahead of the curve on a lot of the oh, stuff yes. and it's like and that's one of those things where it's like i thought we were going to be reading like some stuff that was going to be like oh you know it's tried and true we've i've seen this story before but actually we ended up looking at stories that I've never seen before that made me think about things completely possibilities. Yeah, and it's like, I feel like that's entirely because, you know, it's it's brought from the point of view of someone who who is not from here. Like, someone someone whose life I don't understand because I've never grown up in a country occupied. Yeah, and it gives you a different lens to be able to view uh, other science fiction and the culture at large. Mm. 
Um, was it in terms of movies in the 1950s, 54, uh, the kaiju film got kicked off with Godzilla? All right, so yeah, you have in 1954 uh, the release of Godzilla, the Diago Fukuryu Maru, which was uh, um, a Japanese fishing boat uh, that was caught and contaminated by nuclear fallout from the Castle Bravo thermonuclear weapon test uh, at Atoll, at um, Bikini Atoll on March 1st. 1954, so like um, American atomics testing is still in the 1950s, like fucking with the Japanese. So it's like, this is, a, you know, I, I can, I'm starting to see why, and then immediately after that, Godzilla comes out. Like, that definitely means something to me. It's, it's definitely plugged into cultural zeitgeist in the same way that I think, uh, if you look at Western uh, contemporaries, uh, maybe not contemporaries, but I would say in the 80s, Wes Craven, uh, who I'll mention as one of the recommendations that comes out of the story we're going to do, mm-hmm. um, like to pull from dreams that he had after news events which is how uh, Nightmare on Elm Street ended up happening, because he had a dream about a killer after reading some newspaper articles about a bunch of kids who had died in their sleep. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the things I love about sci-fi, is it's like it's so inherently plugged into the zeitgeist of what the culture at large is thinking. And I think, in particular, Toho really picked up on that with Godzilla. No, I think you're totally right. And it's one of the best things, and I feel like it's like something that we've been that we believe at this podcast and that we've been talking about since we started it. And it's that, you know, fiction is the place that we put the things that we're uncomfortable with. It's the, it's the place where we put the really complex mind problems. Exactly. That need to be worked through. It gives us the framework to be able to work them out in a setting that's safe for the idea to fully realize itself. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, without further ado, uh, shall we discuss the savage mouth? The savage mouth. Let's get into it. Let's, Let's open into that it. mouth and, and shove this story down our gullet. Oh my god. Just open fucking wide, you guys. <laughs> oh, is it actually maybe before then? You know what? You want to do a little bit deeper? Actually, no, just real quick. The, just to... Yeah, no, definitely. Um, in terms of... Uh, so this is um, an incident that happened in Japan on November 25th, 1970. A uh, celebrated writer uh, and Japanese nationalist, uh, Mishima, who I was talking about earlier, he um, he infiltrated a compound uh, of the Japanese self-defense forces, barricaded themselves inside, kidnapped the commandant, and uh, demanded that the emperor be reinstated as head of the state. He was mocked by almost everyone around, like all of the soldiers essentially did not give him any respect, and uh, he ended up committing ritual suicide in the commandant's office. Uh, yeah, it was a very ritualistic way. Bit, um, it took multiple swipes for the guy's second to actually get his head off after he'd sliced his belly open. Like, it was, it was pretty intense, and a lot of people considered that to be the death of sort of, like, old Japan. Like, in that sort of, uh, that sort of artistic, poetic spirit. Um but then after the 70s, you get a lot of different stuff in science fiction, and one of the things that you get is you get the story, The Savage Mouth. And I feel like some of these incidences of, like, you know, trying to be Japanese in a new context, trying to move past the war right, and do something new leads to a lot of, or at least I feel like leads some of these fictions into very strange internal places. Yeah, and it's it's definitely about somebody internalizing that 
the whole situation, the, the death of the old cultural identity and having to use that and kind of cannibalize that image to create something new. And uh, the protagonist of this story struggles with that to the point that they end up taking that because they internalize that message, they end up taking it out on themselves in, mm. in a cannibalistic fashion. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was it. Do you want? Uh, do you want? I should do the plot synopsis. Or Please. So the Savage Mouth is a, a man who is uh, deeply nihilistic and incredibly reserved. He has decided that he is going to slowly and systematically cannibalize himself. He has a setup in his apartment that amputates whatever he needs amputated, sees to the wound, and replaces it with a prosthetic. But slowly, over time, this man eventually cannibalizes himself until all that is left is a bit of brain and an eyeball. Because they were just the last two things. Um, that, that's the only things that he couldn't get around to eating before he transformed or eaten himself by that point. Exactly. And uh, the story ends with uh, his body being discovered by the police. And uh, one of the technicians reaches out and a finger is bitten off. Yes. And uh, the cops decide that no one can ever know what happened in this apartment because they consider it to be a madness of the mind that might be catching. Right. It's They basically, in the end, you read this whole book thinking that maybe this man is a threat to himself or, you know, society is a threat to him. You're, you're kind of, as you're reading through it, you're trying to kind of figure out, get your bearings on what is the moral lesson of this. Yeah. And in the end, what we realize is, is that his crime was perpetuating the freedom to choose what he wanted to do, in this case, cannibalize himself. And in that sense, he's the bad guy, and the society at large is being protected by not mm. having this crime mm. be revealed. Which is interesting to me, because like, he didn't inflict on anyone, really. Like, And it's weird to me, because we're living in a day after so many mass shooters, Like, and I'm like, I would really love it if... you know. I'm not endorsing suicide completely, but, like, if someone who decided to be a mass shooter, maybe just take that gun and use it on yourself. Like, you know, I, I'm not going to argue over whether or not it's wrong to commit suicide, but in the end, it is you. It's your body. It, like, it's especially troubling considering if you imagine a world where people took out the anger of the world and their hatred of themselves on themselves. Mm-hmm. It's a very different landscape from what you see today. Yeah, and it's, and it's interesting to me, too, because, like, people, like, that's... A, there are plenty of dickheads out there who will take out their anger on anyone but themselves. Right. And the idea to be so, like, so focused on not only just feeling and processing through this hate you feel, but to direct that entirely upon right. your body. That's what's like, so crazy about this story. Like, there's a level where I could understand wanting to replace yourself uh, wholesale with robotic parts and sort of transcend the ugly messiness that can be the human condition, but it's another thing entirely to be doing that while you feast upon the part of you that mm -hmm. was alive. Exactly. Now, and there's a... What was it? And with that, do you think uh, we should get into some quotes? Let's do it. All right. What quotes do we do want to do first? Um, so I'm going to do... We'd like to do openers. So I'm going to start with the first uh, two paragraphs. Yes. Um, so... This is The Savage Mouth. Uh, by the way, this is translated by Judith Merrill. Judith, if you're listening, you did a fantastic job. I really enjoyed this story. It's incredibly well translated. Great job. I love translators. You, you, unsung heroes, all of you. Um, so, <laughs> the subtitle, A Horrific Tale by Japan's Leading Science Fiction Writer. No reason at all. 
Why should there be a reason? People want to find reasons for everything, but the truth of things can never be explained. All of existence. Why is it as it is? Why just this way and no other? That kind of reason no one would ever be able to explain. Seething with anger, he, he stood looking out of the window, gritting his teeth. Some days, suddenly, this fury overwhelmed him. Suffer, suffusing the very center of his being, a violent, irrational urge to destruction, which could never be explained to anyone. He jerked the curtain closed. Now, one of the things that I like about it is the first is no reason at all. And that's a thing where it's like when you when you talk about um, acts of extreme uh, acts of extreme violence, whether it be on self or someone else, like one of the first questions anyone will ask is why. Right. And this is very much like there is no reason. It's starting out with the violent impulse, and it's just saying there's no reason for it except for this questioning of all existence. Why are things this way? Why this way and no other way? It it's particularly powerful as a starter because. It almost, this whole thing sort of comes off as a mini manifesto, as though, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't know if this guy knew that he was being narrated about or if people would find him or whatnot, but he, it's so interesting to start your story with nothing matters. Yeah. It's a, it's a very clear direction that you're sailing in, especially mm -hmm. if you're talking about sci-fi and horror. Yeah. And it's also a hard sell in terms of a story, because it's like, um... Like, you know, they, they say, like, bored is boring. Right. Like, you know, reasonless has no reason. So there's this notion of, like, well, if nothing matters, then why should I even read the rest of right. the story? It's incredibly transgressive like, to drop that bomb in the beginning of your story because especially in short stories, you really want to grab people and have them be either pulled in by a story element or identify with the main character almost right away because you have less time. Exactly. And to do this, it's like... You're making the assumption that people are going to keep reading and are going to, you know, be honest with themselves enough to be able to recognize that impulse in themselves and all of us, mm -hmm. which we all know is there to, to some extent hiding somewhere in a small part. Now, there's like, and was it, it was last week we were going to do this story, but like, um, I had March Madness at work, so like, I was just driven crazy by just doing all this stuff, but uh, um, after making food for like tons of people, like cutting out over here and then just having this weird thing where it's like, you know, I kind of get the guy from the savage mouth, <laughs> like this really twisted hatred I had from just like working so intensely all week and watching other people eat food. Like, right. It does build a very specific feeling in you after a little bit, especially if you, if it wears on you as it does clearly for the protagonist. Yes. Yeah. No, and it's like, and I love it too. Cause it's like, this is, Prob like this is about as specific as a definition as this rage gets. It does not ever really explain any more. Like he, we don't find out about any traumatic events in his life. We don't find out about any like weird like eureka moment where he realized that you know the way to deal with this intense inner hatred is through self cannibalism. We didn't get any of that. We just get this this notion that in the center of his being is just this intense destructive urge. Without explanation. No right. reason at all. And and the way he characterizes it and the way he closes the curtains and is very clearly isolated, you definitely get the feeling of self, self-hatred, internalization. I mean, there's a lot of unspoken things that you get from this very short introduction. Yeah. No, and it's like, and it's actually weird to say even internalization because it's like, I mean, on the literal level that happens. Like, he hates the world so much that he's locked himself out of it 
but even that's not enough. He has to remove limbs so that he can put himself even more in himself. Symbolically and literally. Exactly. Like, and it just, it goes like that, you know? Uh, did, do you have one? Uh, let's see. Where, where is the next one? Where is the world we live in? I could just do the next one you marked if you want. I mean, it's up to you. What's the one that you have? Uh, was that in this? I think so. I have that one and I have this one. It ran, I didn't underline it. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, apparently I just wrote down quotes. No, that's fine. Yet to find no, out it actually, or not. No, it's like it doesn't matter if we do it chronologically if you want to just read it. Okay. Um, one of the one of the things that really stood out for me in this was the world we live in is worthless, absurd. Staying alive is an absurdly worthless thing, which we kind of already mm-hmm. touched on here, but it's yeah. it's even more insight into what the main character feels. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I kind of I it really stood out to me specifically because of the idea of cultural consumption. Mm-hmm. The two things actually, cultural consumption and a culture of consumption, yeah. which I think are both kind of being discussed in here. Uh, if, if we're talking specifically about like a post-war world where people are supposed to uh, more readily uh, grab onto the new culture or identity, mm-hmm. it the ideas of consumption are literally this old society is being eaten by this new society. Your old identity is being eaten by your new identity, but at the end of it, it does nothing really matters. Yeah. To the protagonist, nothing, nothing, none of it really matters. All that matters is the consumption itself. Yeah, exactly. There's a, um, no, I, and I'm gonna read this bit because I feel like it goes with that. Yes. But it's it's um, uh, he clenched his teeth, oozing oily sweat. I will eat. It was no different from the way human beings had always cooked and eaten other intelligent mammals. Cows and sheep, those gentle, innocent, sad-eyed grass-eaters. Primitive man even ate his own kind. Some groups had practiced cannibalism right up until modern times. Killing an animal in order to eat. Perhaps there is some justification for that. Other carnivores had to kill to live, too. But human beings. Like, and I love that ellipsis that just sort of trails off. Yeah, it, it, we're seeing into his mindset. And, and like you said before, we don't need the sort of other previous before this plan side of him. Mm-hmm. All we need is the going through with this side of him. And it's where he's identified this part of himself. Exactly. And it's, there's a part of this too that's actually, it was one of the things that really freaked me out the first time I read it. Because I don't, I don't know if you can identify with this or any of our listeners can, but like when you have a body that you feel like kind of betrays you sometimes... That, you know, you don't like, like, you know, if you got a bum leg or you feel like shitty um, or you got a bad liver or whatever, like, uh, you know, you think about things like it, how much better my life would be if this bad leg was gone. And that's the first thing that he does is he has a leg surgically removed and he looks at it and he ponders over what useless, it, how useless it was, like, and how much he hated it and was glad to be rid of it. Do you mind if I read the full quote? I I would love that. Okay, because it ties into exactly what you're talking about. The world we live in is worthless, absurd. Staying alive is an absurdly worthless thing. Above all, this worthless character, myself, 
is quite intolerably absurd. Why so absurd? Why? There it was again. Worthless. Absurd. Simply because absurd and worthless. Everything. Prosperity, science, love, sex, livelihood, sophisticated people, nature, earth, the universe, all disgustingly filthy, frustratingly foolish. Therefore. Yeah. That's so good. That's where it is. Yeah. Frustratingly probably. foolish. Yep. I I can definitely identify with the with this character to some extent. I felt this way before in the past, but Oh yeah. Where that line of thought takes him, I think, is what's really interesting about this story. Where that ellipsis goes. Yeah. Was it uh, is it that there's another bit. Alright, I am a pig. Or rather, human beings are much worse than pigs. Filthier, nastier. Inside myself, there is a part that is less than pig, and a noble part endlessly angry and ashamed at being less than a pig. That noble part was going to eat the less than pig part. What was there to fear in that? The way he talks himself into this is yeah. terrifying to me. Uh, that was the part. That, those are the things that were making me sweat the most in this. Is his um, rationalization? You know what I mean. His internal monologue is chilling. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way he's sort of depersonalizing and Orhora has already depersonalized to the point that all he really has to do is depersonalize from disassociate from his own body in order to consume it yeah which is like that's a, it's super interesting to me because it's like I think we've talked about this before but it's like the uh, like it almost seems like like almost an opposite like I don't know I was going to say, like, sort of the opposite of, like, the protagonist from All You Zombies. Yes. Like, you know, sort of in terms of another Ouroboros, that one's, like, the, the figurative eating of yourself through time. Like, what that just basically means is you become your own, like, you know, basically, in, in terms of this, he's becoming his own meal. Right. And the other one, he's becoming his everything. Right. It's a, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a matter of fatalism mm-hmm. versus, like, just fate. You yeah. know what I mean? The uh, all you zombies care actor. I mean, he realized the pl- that his place in it was maybe meaningless, but also incredibly mm-hmm. meaningful at the same time. Yeah. And this is the the dark mirror. Yeah, exactly. This is yeah. This is the the cold dark side of that realization. <laughs> exactly. And can I just? I have a quote I want to do. It's not necessarily anything cultural, but I really want to kind of project how squeamish this story made me feel and how when I've tried to explain this story to other people, they look at me in horror, shock, and bemusement. <laughs> so, I'm just going to cut right to the operation. Yes. If you don't mind, is that alright? No, that's totally fine. Okay, and, and if you had a different part of it, then let me know. But Clamps projecting from the table secured the leg at shank and ankle. A steel claw holding a disinfectant gauze pad came slowly down onto the thigh joint. The electric scalpel sliced silkily through the skin, cauterizing as it went. There was hardly any blood. Cutting the muscle tissue, exposing the large artery, clamping off with with forceps, ligation, cutting and treating the contracting muscle surface, the buzzing rotary saw was soon whirring towards the exposed femur. It hit the bone. His eyes blinked shut at the shock. There was almost no vibration. The diamond embedded in the ultra-high-speed saw made only the faintest rubbing noise as it sliced through bone, simultaneously treating the cut surface with a mixture of potent enzymes. In exactly six minutes, 
His right leg had been cleanly severed from the joint. This is where it becomes sci-fi. Like, I... And, and what I love about this so much is, like, you take away the sci-fi, and what you're left with is some really good body horror. Yeah. But the fact that he has the means to execute his vision so completely is, I think, the transcendent sci-fi aspect of the story. No, I think you're totally right. Yeah, no, it's the it's the thing, the, the thing that you introduced that makes... The, the bit of science that actually lets you enact this thought experiment. Right. And it's and was it it's weird too, because it's like when I read that, I it got flashes of Prometheus, like with the med tube. Or the yes. med bay pod. Yeah. Uh I, I got a lot of flashes to a lot of different things. I mean this is that that's a that's a probably the best example I could think of. I'll come back to what I was thinking about later. Um was it after that, if you don't mind, uh was it he lifted his own right leg off to Hable. It was so heavy, he he was almost staggering. Inside himself, he was once again seized with a paroxysm of savage laughter. All my life I've been dragging all this weight around. How many kilos had he liberated himself from by cutting off the support? I love it. Me too. Because it's like, yeah, you could try diets or exercises, but there's only one real way to there's lose weight. There's only one weight. real way to lose weight. Yeah, and the relief you must be feeling after that. Oh, I mean, it, it, what it, what it brought up for me was just, it's further cementing what he's feeling. You know what I mean? Because, like, he's, he's, he's having to talk himself into doing all this stuff by saying, oh, blah, 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 eating other intelligent creatures. I mean nothing. But, like, with, before when I was saying about the quote where he, he felt shock when the bone was hit by the diamond-cutting saw. Yeah. This is the science that's really bringing to fore, like, it's one thing if somebody was just cutting off little pieces of themselves and they were some sort of weirdo serial killer or something like that, which is how mm. I could imagine uh, you know, a this, lot of other projects. This could very easily be, like, a Saw-type movie, like, right. if you wanted to. If you wanted to take it that way, like, you could have a basement, you could have, right. you know, someone slowly peeling the flesh out right. of themselves and cooking it. But he has the will and the means to fully execute his vision and mm. cleanse himself of the parts of himself he thinks are the most gross and destructive and meaningless. Yeah. Well, no, and it's like, and it, this is a weird thing where it's like, we might have to save this bit for premature enlightenment when we get there, but like, I have kind of a weird idea with with what this means about the, the pig part versus the noble part. And I love that his noble is in quotes. Yes. Yeah. I, like, it, there's a part of me that's less than a pig and the, and the noble part. And the noble part of me is going to eat the animal. Right. And and it's it's kinda cool that he mentions um cannibals eating the the flesh of their enemies and kind of that idea of absorbing their knowledge and their soul. But what does it mean in a sort of a being John Malkovich way when you yeah. do that to yourself? Oh my god yeah, no, he's just in a room full of himself, he's singing on a piano. Yeah. It, Boy, this is connecting even mm. more with all you zombies than I realized. Yeah, no, it's a little weird how how much I'm seeing that in this. Yeah, that's pretty strange. Um. Oh yeah. All right, so I'm gonna we're gonna. So it's it's been pretty fucked up, but let's just <laughs> jump forward to day three. Yes. Um. On the third day, he amputated the left leg. This one, just as it was, shin bone and all. He skewered and smeared liberally with butter, then roasted it on the rotisserie in a big oven. He was fearless by now. 
he had discovered himself to be surprisingly delicious. With that discovery, a mixture of anger and madness rooted itself firmly in his heart. After the first week, things got more difficult. He had to amputate the lower half of his body. On the toilet, installed in the wheelchair, he experienced the delights of defecation for the last time in his, wor in his world. As he ejected, he guffawed, look at this mess. What, am I now ex what I'm now excreting is my own self, stored up in my own bowels and turned to shit. Perhaps this was the ultimate act of self-contempt. Or might it be the utmost in self-glorification? Oh, God, that scene is, like, harrowing. Yeah. I, he, he's, he's going to the bathroom for the last time in his life, and this is after he said that the madness rooted itself into cold, and he's laughing hysterically mm -hmm. as he processes himself. Mm -hmm. uh, it's... It makes me shudder. It's intense. Yeah, me too. Um, there's uh, there's a part of it that I find super fascinating, and it's like um, this question towards the end, like, is this self contempt or is this self glorification? To say that, like, I'm, and it's this is gonna sound kind of weird to say, but it's like by saying to himself, I am such a like crazy like beyond dude that like just killing myself isn't good enough. I have to do it in the most grandiose way possible. Right. Is this narcissist, right. narcissistic self-destruction, or is this transcendental exactly. uh, awakening? No, and it's like, I love that too, like, to discover that you yourself are delicious, <laughs> which is, like, terrifying. God, I it, know. I just thought of that scene from, like, Hannibal, where, like, Ray Liotta's eating his own brain. Like, he smells a cookie, and he's like, oh, that smells good. And then Anthony Hopkins gives him a bit to eat, and uh, Julianne Moore wretches. What's even more messed up in that since we're on the topic of that and talking about cannibalism is that he takes a little doggy bag to go <laughs> and gives it to a kid on a plane which, starting yeah. the next Hannibal maybe question mark. Exactly. Which in like, I died when that happened, like when he pulled out the thing on the plane, cause I'm like, okay, this is just too much to be corrupting this poor young child. But then also, well, wait, you had to run away at the end of the last movie. Are you telling me you had time to pack a Dean and DeLuca brains? <laughs> I mean, I believe it, you know. Hannibal is nothing if not efficient yeah. in terms of planning. He, I'm sure he's got a lot of escape bags yeah. with brains. I got a bug out bag with brains. Yo, man, I got brains. <laughs> you got brains, bro? Yeah. Uh, but no, that was, yeah, and it's like, it's that aspect of, like, the horror of, like, sort of the reduction of a human into commodity. Right. Like, the idea that you, your, like, you yourself can be turned into a meal. Which so is I like being his people. Exactly. We do, yeah, we do this to animals all the time, but, like, once once it's us, it's different. But this is, like, even a step beyond Soylent Green, because it's not just people, it's you. Right. Like, it's the idea that what you're doing to yourself is the ultimate statement that you can possibly make using your flesh as a canvas. Yeah. And your taste buds. Yeah, and, and I can imagine why the police would not want this getting out, because... If you were so delicious that you could fully eat yourself to the point of being completely gone, I mean, imagine if other people realized how delicious they tasted. Oh, God, yeah. No, and it's, that's a thing where it's like, by the end, they're like, we can never tell anyone that this happened. <laughs> oh, absolutely do that. Okay. Yes, please, do that. <laughs> okay, so we're jumping forward again in time. Uh, he's been eating oh, a whole lot. Actually, stuff. real quick, before you do that, can I do the one uh, sentence before that? Yeah, please. Um... Oh, that's good. Yeah. The wills, yeah, because I want to do it too, because that's our money shot. Like, 
It is. Uh, the wellsprings of appetite lie in the savage impulse for aggression, killing and eating, crushing and crunching, swallowing and absorbing. That is the savage mouth. Right? Uh, it's such. It's it's definitely the money shot of of this for the for our story. It's just like the idea of like um, the savage impulse. And the idea of consume or be mm-hmm. consumed taken to its farthest extent. Exactly. And it's like, and I love it too, where we talk about sort of uh, words that come up more than once. But savage is, we've had it a few times. Uh, this is the first time it's with mouth, but like, um, it's related to mouth. Like the other times, like I think the first time he, when he amputates his, his, the first leg, he says he had a savage laugh. Yes. Yeah, savage works really well in this. And I'm really glad, especially with the translation of the title and that that being used so many times in it that 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 really came out because savage is just a perfect word to describe the animalistic Mm. urge and rage that he's feeling that he's been talking about this whole story yeah no and it's i love it too because like you're right about this where it's like it's this otherness that's almost like it's not like most of the time you hear savage and it's like it's got like a a connotation of race of ethnicity yes where like you you describe like you would describe savage things as being you know feral or like you know people that are less than but like the savage mouth is just this guy's mouth it's the the savage thing is the thing that's in you that hates so much that it will consume itself in hatred right and i mean and, and that's we're, we're not seeing what this guy would do if he had some sort of external uh, release for his hatred of all of this. But, you know, like we were talking about earlier with with uh, internalizing, the idea of internalizing the savageness of the human race and the struggle for life and taking it out on yourself until you systematically erase everything human or animal, mm-hmm. it's really beautiful. Yeah, you know, and it's actually weird. So before we did this podcast, we started, um, we watched some clips from Monty Python. And this is a thing that actually kind of blows my mind, because, like, it didn't just swim back around until right now. But uh, we watched the bit of Mr. Creosote from... Yes! Mr. Creosote from fucking The Meaning of Life. So it's the dude who, like, who eats so much that he, like, explodes, and it's that one last thing that kills him. But there's this moment, and it's like... a like, I'm, it's for the pit you're about to read, but it's, like, that moment, like, when Mr. Creosote is, like, like shocked and looking down at the cavernous remains of himself because of his eating, there's, like, this weird thing where it's, like, that's... I feel like that's a little bit where this story goes. That's like, definitely where this story goes. And this guy gets every... He gets to watch every step as it happens, so he gets to sort of depersonalize and... and give in to the animalness or, or, or mm. consume the animalness more yeah. and more. No, and it's actually, it's interesting now to think about it where it's like, is that like, is this about a, the commodification of people? Like, you know, in an, in an impersonal time that marches forward into a, into a situation that you don't recognize right. as being the place where you grew up and the values that you hold. And, you know, us capitalism definitely becomes more important now. So what happens when, you are living for paychecks, like, in this different Japan. Yeah, and and, and it's very uh, well articulated by him when he says, you know, that nothing matters. It's very it's very clearly talking about this, how, you know, you're, you're supposed to go from this sort of identity-based person to somebody new who's supposed to be entirely out for themselves, and everyone is supposed to be entirely out for themselves in order to better integrate into this new idea mm-hmm. of of who they are. Yeah. 
So we read about the savage mouth. Yes. By now, the end of his throat was connected only to a disposal tube. Nourishment for the remaining body tissues was poured directly into the blood from a container of nutritive fluids. Endocrine functions were maintained with the help of artificial organs. By the end of the month, both arms were completely eaten. The only part that remained was from the neck up. And by the 40th day, almost all the muscles of the face had been eaten as well. The lips alone were left to chew with the assistance of attached springs. Only one eyeball remained. The other had been sucked and chewed. What sat there now, mounted on a labyrinthian mechanism of pipes and tubes, was the living skull alone. In that skull, only mouth and brain survived. No. Even now, an arm of the machine was peeling off the scalp, taking a saw to the top of the skull and removing it cleanly. Sprinkling salt and pepper and lemon on the trembling exposed cerebellum, in the act of scooping up a great spoonful, my brain, thought the, cere the cerebrum that was he, how can I taste such a thing? Can a man live to savor the taste of his own brain jelly? The spoon punctured the ashy-hued brain. No pain. There is no sensation in the cerebral cortex. But, cortex. But by the time the arm of the machine scooped up that pale, mushy paste and carried it to the skull's mouth, and the mouth lapped it up to swallow, taste was no longer recognizable. And just if I can read the next line... Oh, please do. <laughs> homicide. The inspector told the reporters crowded into the entranceway as he came out of the room. And what's more, an almost unprecedentedly brutal and degenerate crime. The criminal is probably a medically knowledgeable psychopath. Looks like an attempt at some sort of insane experiment. The body was taken apart, limb from limb, and hooked up to all kinds of artificial organs. See, and that's insane too to say right off because it's like... Well, like, the evidence that he's cannibalizing himself is being shot away. So, like, yeah. No, that was, that was fucking intense. Yeah. It, the idea of, oh, my God, this whole thing, like, can a man live to savor the taste of his own brain jelly? Uh, was it my brain thought the cerebellum that was he? So it's like, it, it is really just setting the human, the, the, the ego, the self, in that brain jelly and then to taste it. And then, but you know, the cerebral cortex feels no pain. And as soon as he, like, takes the, the spoon to his mouth, taste is no longer recognizable. So it's like, it really weirdly, it kind of reminds me of, like, this sort of, like, uh, like this fading horizon that, like, I would, I would bring up the movie The Prestige, where it's like, when Hugh Jackman's like, you know, I want to be the man in the... I don't want to be the man in the box. I want to be the man in the prestige. Like, I want to be the guy that comes out at the end, you know, having done the trick and, and get all my accolades instead of being the person who actually does the trick. But it's like, he couldn't have his cake and eat it too. You no. know, you can't be the man in the box and the man in the prestige. Right. And in fact, it always ends with the man in the box dying. But like, in this case, it's like, can I, can I, can I fucking push this obsession this far? Can I be the first person to eat and taste their own brain, and it's like, as soon as he eats it, it's like the bit the taste is gone. So it's like, humanity flittered away, like vanished in the right. machines. What's so beautiful about this marriage of body, of biology and, and machine, 
is, yes, that tipping point where it's like, we as humans love to be able to say that everything has a starting and end point, that this is exactly where the genesis of this thing was, and this is when I did this, and this is exactly when this happened, when it's a lot more nebulous, but by the nature of this short story, we're able to follow his journey exactly into how little humanity is left. Yeah. Or even thought. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to start this to start a story and I've never considered with a whole person and then it's just end it with less of with no person. Like I, I definitely can count on one hand the number of stories I can think of that do that. Yeah. Was it I'm sorry, I just needed to to point out this bit that you read because I fucking love it so much. Um was the, uh, by the 40th day, almost all the muscles in the face had been eaten the well. The lips alone were left to chew with the assistance of attached springs. One eyeball remained. The other had been sucked and chewed. What sat there now, mounted on a labyrinthian mechanism of pipes and tubes, was the living skull alone. In that skull, only a mouth and brain survived. And I need to cue metal guitars because that <laughs> right. is the metalest fucking thing I have ever I need to see this read. realized in real life so badly. This is I've ne- this is this would be a disturbing movie, but I've never wanted to see it more than now. <laughs> I need a Masters of Horror of this. Oh my or god. Twilight Zone or whatever. We were sending this to every director we know. Yes. This would be like you have to do this. Why aren't you doing this? This would actually be a great Black Mirror episode. This would be that's exactly what I was thinking. It would be a very good Black Mirror episode. Uh, especially for the length. I think that that would be perfect. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I want to see this realized so much with a, either, I don't know, I don't know exactly the conceit you would do for narration. Either you would have a diary be found or he was narrating into a thing or you literally hear his brain thoughts. That could be, there's a lot of ways you could take this. And now that would be amazing too, where it's like, because once he eats that bit of brain, like he realizes the taste is gone, but like to do like an unreliable narrator spin with it would just like, as more of him disappears, like, the movie becomes weirder. Yes. Like, just entire bits of... Or, like, you know, like, you used to have voiceover, but now you don't. Right. Like, right. You could slowly have that bleed away, and maybe even the way that we perceive the thing taking place could start to morph as as there are less senses available to be able to perceive mm-hmm. them. Exactly. And it's like the imagery gets the craziest when you only have one eye. Yeah. Uh, one that, that's been sucked and chewed on. Yep. Uh, was it? I have just one more quote. Yeah. Hi, babe. God damn it, game. Chew quieter. Or chew human flesh if you're going to help. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alright, so, uh, people tearing themselves apart, killing each other, wrecking, destroying. The symptoms, bar- the symptoms are, are already beginning to show up. This one commits suicide by swallowing infused dynamite. This one pours gasoline and sets himself on fire. Another one starts screwing in the middle of the city in broad daylight. When there is nothing more reasonable left to attack, the caged animal starts to destroy his own sanity. And I think that that's a very interesting way to look at because now this has been contextualized by the police officer in a larger group of uh, crimes that are happening throughout the city. Right. And it's like I think that that's fascinating where it's like in... In a, in a world after the atomic bomb and occupation, uh, in talking about this man who just ate himself to death, right. saying that the symptoms are out there, you know, they're beginning to show up, people committing, people killing themselves by swallowing dynamite, right. uh, fucking in the middle of the street, like, there's no propriety, like, yeah. It, that's very interesting that that's the read on it. I don't think I got that uh, from reading it before where it was like, 
I thought that they were saying that those were other things that could happen. I didn't realize that maybe this is, there's a broader story about what's actually happening. I could also be totally wrong about that. Too. No, I like to see it through that lens because, like, the idea that this is so men in black type of situation that they literally have to cover it up, burn the tapes, and throw mm-hmm. everything in the fucking incinerator is... If they're that worried about people coming loose at the seams just from this, uh, things might be far worse than we really understand. Yeah. No, and it's like, it's even weirder, too, because there's that line earlier where he's like, um, if only people knew how little little they needed to eat. Like, in that, you know, you can actually, human beings don't have to eat other animals. A human being can eat itself. And In the same way we yeah. as society could do all of that to ourselves. Exactly. And it's a, uh, yeah. Uh, what's, what's also interesting, and this kind of fits into the unreliable narrative thing you were talking about a little bit ago, this story starts with one person, and by the end of the book, their narration crumbles, and then is gone, and we end with an entirely different person who wasn't the character in the whole story, and, and they pretty much contextualize what the thing you just read was actually about, even though we... I wish I could hear those tapes, man. Is that uh, maybe that's no, what it was? Like, yeah. they may be covering up something real big if there were tapes recording this thing happening the whole time. Yeah, I would like to imagine what would happen if these things got out. Like, I bet you he's right. I bet you it would be all kinds of weird stuff. The symptoms are already beginning to show up. Yeah, you're right. That is the read of it. This one commits suicide by swallowing fused dynamite. This one pours gasoline and sets one itself on fire. This is a world that's one minute away from midnight. Yeah. No, and it's uh, I love that Alan Moore said this. Like, and we talked about this before too. With, we did. Uh, with um, when Alan Moore was talking about the Watchmen and uh, sort of the crazy shit that happens in that story, um, he brings up uh, nuclear annihilation a lot. Um, but he brought up specifically that you can't just have a world where you could be snuffed out, where you, the bombs could fly at any moment and we're all just dead. You can't let people know that right. and not expect them to act a little weird. Yes. You can't, yeah, you can't have a, you can't live in a post-Hiroshima world right. without some crazy stuff going on in people's minds. Right. This may be the realization of living in that world. This may be one symptom of what happens when people fully accept the kind of hopelessness that he's hinting at at the end of this. Yeah. No, and it's, uh, this actually kind of reminds me of this thing that Oppenheimer said. Um, yes. Uh, it was it after, um, uh, years after the, uh, um, he headed up the Manhattan Project and they dropped the bomb, he was um, quoted as saying, and this isn't exact, but it was something to the effect of, of all of the murderers, rapists, and horrible people out there, uh, the physicists that worked on that project are the only humans alive that know true sin. Yeah, it's. Uh, we need to have a whole another conversation about sci-fi and horror and the bomb as well. Oh my I god, I would love that to come out. I of really this. would. No, you know, and it's actually it, anyone listening to you should probably check this out. But there's like a five-hour podcast done by Hardcore History's Dan Carlin, and it's just called The Destroyer of Worlds, and it's just the the history of nuclear weapons. And it's amazing. I'd love to go into that. Uh, I'll definitely check that out. And and uh, I want to say that, like, on top of that, I think that the idea of using the bomb as 
the horror or the sin of man or the, the you know, the evil that men do. Mm-hmm. I love that as a theme as well. And I think that even though it's not explicitly stated in the story, it's definitely mm-hmm. the yeah. motivation behind it. Yeah, and it's like, even if an atomic power obviously is never directly uh, confronted in this story, neither is really living in post war Japan. No. Or, the, or the only capitalism. Thing, exactly. The only the only thing that uh, evokes those is that they were all around when the story was written. Yes. And it's hard to ignore those. Yeah. No, because it's like, I can't, like, I'm not going to lie to you, like, in, in my own personal writing after the Trump presidency, I feel like I never write about, I never really write about politics as they are happening now, yet somehow when I reread the stuff I've written, I see it. Like, my writing can very much be a product of the time in which it's written. Right. In the same way that a lot of fiction, science fiction leading up to this, I'm not even talking about Japanese, but just world science fiction, we tend to go from utopia as Mm. the focus of stories to dystopia. Whether it be on seeing a whole country or civilization, or the abyss that one soul drops into, that kind of becomes the focus of almost all science fiction at some point. I mean, you know, there's there's lots of cases where they turn that around and they use a dystopia to show what could come after dystopia, something better. But I feel like the bomb represents, and the end of the war represents a loss of innocence to some extent. Yeah. No, and it's like, uh, was it, and we, uh, I think we touched on it briefly when we did our episode on Ursula Le Guin, but it's like it being one of those moments that just sort of like changes the way that people think, where it's like, I honestly happen to believe that after Auschwitz, like we can't think the same way. No. Like the phrase, I, the phrase I was just following orders now means jack shit to me because I've gotten that mental upgrade. Like we, we've lived in a world where now that's the thing we have to deal with. And now congratulations, we've all changed the way we thought. Yep. Sometimes it's not for the best. Like, you know, this guy, this guy, like he, he took that hatred and instead of really like ruminate, like instead of going on a journey inward through himself, he ate himself. It, if, if the society is at such a point where this guy, who seems to be a nobody, is able to create an entirely robotic system, la- a labyrinthian, as they said before. <laughs> labyrinthian. Yeah, of keeping a human alive. Can you imagine the implications if this guy had directed that towards life extension? Mm-hmm. Now, clearly it wouldn't have been as poignant of a story. Yeah. It would have been the reversal of this story, which is him adding to human beings and make them be able to transcend that. But it's the dark mirror of that, which is yeah. what's so interesting. No, it's like, yeah, or like giving us the med pod from Prometheus, like, you know, available now in every home. Yes. The best thing that could ever take care of you medically. Or you can use it to rotisserie roast your legs. Yeah, or that. It's possible. Yeah, either way, you can either preserve or destroy the humanity that's dragging you down. <laughs> you, you have the power. You have the technology. Yep. Alrighty, uh, so I just want to do um, some quick biographical information yes. on... Uh, on um, our writer, Sakio Komatsu. Yeah, no, I want to. Yeah, so I want to do some quick biographical and in, in, uh, information on Komatsu. Um, was it? This is from uh, he. He just yeah. So uh, Sakio Komatsu. He's unfortunately no longer with us. He passed uh, July twenty sixth in two thousand eleven. He. Yeah, he received a degree in Italian literature in 1954 from Kyoto University and later received 
and later worked as a magazine editor, a factory foreman, and a comedy script writer. In 61, he entered a science fiction competition. Uh, Peace on Earth was the story that he uh, wrote for it. Uh, and it was, uh, the basic premise is uh, the story doesn't, World War II does not end in 1945, and a young man prepares to defend Japan against the Allied invasion. Uh, it received an honorable mention and uh, won 5,000 yen for him. He's done a couple of movies. Uh, he wrote novels that have become movies. His, prob- his most famous novel is Japan Sinks. The nation of Japan is going to sink into the ocean. Uh, it's supposed to be pretty good. I've got it on my, my queue. And uh, it became a movie in 73. And, uh, Tidal Wave. Yeah, Tidal Wave in 73. And uh, another movie I really want to check out is uh, Sayonara Jupiter, or Bye Bye Jupiter, which was released in uh, 84 in film version. And that just seems pretty cool. We uh, watched the trailer for it. it. It had some really cool elements. It really did, yeah. It's like very, it's uh, like it has that sort of saturated color of like Dario Argento movies. And and in the same way that these stories that we were talking about and, and the, the one that we just uh, discussed were sort of a zeitgeist for the popular feeling of the culture, Bye Bye Jupiter seems similarly to represent a lot of what sci-fi looked like at that time period or what it was drawing from. Exactly. Stylistically. Yeah. No, it's very much of its time. Like, And I really, I can't wait to um, get my hands on a copy. Yeah, I really want to watch that. If any of y'all know where we can find a place to stream it, like, let us know, because we would love to do that. Otherwise, I'm just going to be, like, trolling the internet looking for... We might be able to good... watch this in pieces, enough yeah. pieces that make up the actual movie. Which would be nice. Yeah. Um, and uh, what else? Oh, uh, the unprecedented underlying thing uh, was made clear this year on March 11th when Japan was struck by an earthquake and tsunami that set off a nuclear plant disaster. In uh, the issue of his quarterly magazine published on July 21st, Katsu, uh, Kamatsu said he hoped to see how his country would evolve after the catastrophe, saying, quote, I had thought I wouldn't mind dying any, any day, he wrote. But now I'm feeling like living a little bit longer and seeing how Japan will go on hereafter. And we discussed this a little bit before the podcast, talking about the idea of wanting your country to change for the better and being able to be hopeful, even with a nihilistic view that maybe something this big coming back from it after it and the change that it'll bring about could lead to a better future. Yeah. Exactly. No, is it? And he's actually, um, he's kind of gotten a, an uptick in interest in America over the past year. Uh, why is that? Uh, he recently, uh, well, he didn't recently write it, but uh, there was a, uh, a no- short story or novel? I think it was a short story. Short story where he um, he talked a little bit. It, it, it's a story that came out in 1977, and it involves uh, a wall mysteriously appearing around the United States and it was meant to tie into at the time ideas about uh it's called American Wall here we go found it hmm. and this has recently been republished as an ebook um it's said to have sold more than a million copies America's Wall is about a US president who touts the phrase shining America until in his third year in office the country is surrounded by a mysterious cloud bank wall resulting in the states descending into isolationism. Komatsu had said in an interview that he thought making America disappear from the world stage would illustrate its significance and expose its weakness as a nation. Which I think that's super interesting. Like, the idea of... I mean, first of all, we've got um, tons of people who are 
um, advocating the building of a wall on our southern border right now. And with restrictions, uh, attempted restrictions on immigration that are happening right now, like... Shining America sounds uh, shine, uh, pretty familiar, too, doesn't it? A little it? bit, yeah. And it's, um, I think it's interesting. I can't wait to uh, to get my hands on this. Yeah, it, it's especially interesting considering the time period that it came out and what it was echoing, which was Vietnam mm. and those sorts of conditions being set up. But what it predicted ended up being similar to conditions in America in the 21st century. Yeah, no, and it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I feel like art is constantly um, loaning itself to these reinterpretations with significance. Like, like I know that... Uh, um, V for Vendetta was uh, a critique of Margaret Thatcher's right. England, but you know, it the one that gets made into a film, it's uh, in a post nine eleven world. Post nine eleven world, and it ended up resonating with future events mm-hmm. and recontextualizing after those future events as well with anonymous and sort of the hacking culture that it quasi inspired. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's sort of a feedback loop. Yeah, or, not a feedback loop, but. Some sort of yeah. loop that's feeding into itself. It's definitely a loop. It's, it's definitely for sure a, a loop is involved. A now. shitty self-eating loop. Yeah, just like this story. <laughs> the story wasn't shitty. The the self-eating loop was, and there was yeah. shitting. There in was it, shitting. So. There was shitting involved in the loop. So yes, uh, that's the circle of not life. It's the circle of something. <laughs> um, was it? Do you have any? So uh, we're going to bring up a new. Uh, uh, a new segment we have. Uh, Luskin, would you say that you're experiencing premature enlightenment? I'm like, constantly on the cusp of premature enlightenment, but especially yeah. reading this story has brought me to the very edge, about to explode into enlightenment. Yeah, I'm feeling you there. What does it give you? Like, what's what's the thing that you see in it that is just truthful? Or... About the story in premature enlightenment? Yeah, like, what are you feeling? Okay, so this story reminds me i don't normally feel this except when i'm reading body horror and sci-fi so this particularly resonates well with that Mm -hmm. but the idea of coming to grips with some sort of ultimate cosmic truth or cosmic horror and the actions that you take right after that i -hmm. love the idea of being on the precipice of an ultimate cosmic awakening yeah just the, the mere moments before which is also kind of almost how society is um, represented in a way of being like we're constantly on the cusp of enlightenment or destruction mm-hmm. how about you what, what's it bring up no actually and before i get into that I'm, i want to say that I, I think that that's incredibly cogent i uh, there was i just recently um uh went back to davis uh, a couple of months ago to see the eddie Izzard, uh um talk that he did there yeah which i love eddie Izzard. if you don't know him you should check him out he's a comedian he speaks all the languages he's super smart and he's going to be getting more involved in British politics. Uh, but one of the things, he his show opener was, this is either going to be the first hundred years of humanity or the last. Oh, I love that. We're either going to figure out a, ma- a way to make this work for everyone, or this is going to be the end for humanity. And I, I kind of like, I know it's alarmist, but I kind of like that outlook on it. It's like, this is either going to be our first hundred years or our last. And I think... Especially with, like... You know, our parents kind of felt this and and the generation around the atomic bomb, but there's this sort of, there's this little period where we kind of had to figure out what the implications were of living in the atomic age. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, with the Cold War and nuclear armament, we sort of 
for a long time we're coming to grips with the idea of any we this could all go up in a powder keg at any second mm -hmm. but then the generation after that is the one born into just sort of being used to that yeah you know what i mean i would actually say it, it kind of goes even weirder beyond because it's not all, it's not just that they they're used to it but there's like there's a part of me that lo like i love the x-men like full disclosure i wish you're aware of that i have an x-men tattoo but the the whole idea of the x-men their entire emergence as beings of power happens in like the 1960s. You have this really interesting parallel that they do later on with the Vietnam War and Krakoa. But the thing that I find interesting is that they are, they're frequently called also in the comics, children of the atom. Yes. So yeah, Professor Xavier's parents worked on the Manhattan projects, uh, Sunfire, who's a Japanese mutant. Uh, his, his mom was a Hiroshima. Right. And that's how he got a, like his, his powers. But it's like, I think that it's interesting that there's um, that that Godzilla aspect of that terror of the atomic age gets introduced, gets dropped there, and then by the time you reach the 60s, you're starting to get radioactive monster movies and the X-Men, which are like the children of the atom, basically the the adapted form, the children who were born to live in this world yes. with atomic energy. The ones who will inherit the Earth. Exactly. And it's like, and I think that that's interesting with a... Um, with the story that we just read, because um, this man's reaction to the world was to collapse in on himself um, and not to explode out. Which I can understand. I mean, mm -hmm. some people, especially considering it sounds like with, with his curtain shuddering and, you know, the multiple times he, he narrates to himself about how he feels about his worthless self, mm -hmm. that that is the lesson he took from that is he... he saw the vision of something greater on the horizon, be it destruction or mm -hmm. what he was realizing, which was sort of, sort of transformation, but ultimately mm -hmm. it ended up being a final act, not an opening salvo. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, no, yeah. He's not a child of the atom. He's the end of the, of the last age. No, and it's, and there's a, yeah, no, he, he decides very, very decisively to burn up and like pass away. And I think that that's an interesting statement to make because it's like I'm I love reading about existentialists like I um, well actually absurdist Albert Camus is one of my favorites sure but the myth of Sisyphus is all about this it's all about whether or not you have the right to kill yourself like yes you know the the problem of suicide right and it's interesting to me because uh, this man it's it it is savage it's horrible what he's done to himself but. He is only doing it to himself, and with the exception of the poor medical tech at the end, um, nobody's really yeah, injured by this. There wasn't a victimless crime, except for the victim. But the victim ate himself, so it was a homicide. It was no, and he says it's a homicide, which also reminds me. <laughs> did you ever see the um, uh, the film Murder by Death? No. If you ever get a chance, you should check it out. It's the one that uh, Alec Guinness did immediately before Star Wars. It's a uh, it's a Neil Simon murder mystery oh. with a great all-star cast, but like, there's this one, there's this one woman who died before the movie starts, uh, Mrs. Twain, and they're showing Maggie Smith and uh, her husband to uh, the room that she she killed herself in. So there's blind Alec Guinness, the butler, showing them to their room, and he's like, "This is the room in which Mrs. Twain murdered herself," and they're just like, "What are you talking about? Murder? You mean she committed suicide?" And he says, "Oh no." Mrs. Twain hated herself. <laughs> oh, I love that murder. Uh, 
like a, su- a suicide so savage that you have to call it a murder. Like, That's definitely this. I yeah. mean, even if they were co- using that as a cover-up, what what could you possibly call what this was other than some sort of grand experiment? And that's putting a positive light on it. Yeah. No, and it's actually, like, I will say, there there's a weird... In speaking to your moment of premature enlightenment, I feel like one of the things that mine was is for him to... For him to approach his end, like, basically, he's just trying to rid himself, like he says, of the bit of him that is animal. Right. And leave only the noble part. So, like, the noble part consumes itself. Right. But in the end, like, you know, the thing that he was wanting to reach like that sort of right. that sublime moment of like what is it like to taste your own brain like what is it like for the eye to look at itself directly it's an ineffable experience exactly and it's like the closer you approach it it's like it's asymptotic the closer you're going to get to it the more it's not going to touch like, right right it, it, until the point where he's not even biologically alive you yeah. could say anymore but that was the moment that he reached it mm-hmm. and i love this also because uh, <sighs> Can you imagine what it would be like for your soul to be ripped apart before a metaphysical uh, transcendence? Like, this is the mm-hmm. closest I could imagine to that experience being carried out on a, like, physical and visceral level. Mm-hmm. He's literally transcending the flesh. Yeah. No, yeah, he is. Like, he's, be- yeah, becoming beyond. Right. And it's like, and this is a critique, too, that I, th- I think of, uh, like, most transhumanism in in science fiction. Right. Because, you know, it's very much like, Yes, we can remove bits and replace them with other bits, and we can make ourselves better. But what's that thing yeah. that comes afterwards, and is it the same thing that went in? Yeah, no, exactly. And it's like when you like when he looks at his leg after it's been amputated, and he says it's just dead weight, and it's like, no, bro, that was your leg. Like, that used to get you places. Right. It, wow. I go back and forth on this story. It's so crazy that it's like, I'm not able to land on one interpretation of it. I can't decide if his reading, like what he said about whether he's, if it's beautiful or or animalistic and gross that he's shitting himself out that it, mm-hmm. is it transcendent or is it even more bestial and i can't mm-hmm. i can't honestly decide which one he hit because yeah. he did do something beyond human and he did it even if the motivations came from nihilism and despair he set out to do this thing that he wanted to accomplish and he did it a hundred percent and i'm sure that if this doesn't get out no one else will ever experience the same experience as him mm-hmm. No, I completely agree. Uh, yeah. Um, Can I just make one more comment? Yes. You talked about the agents. This is just a side comment. You talked about the the children of the atom. Yes. This is a random interpretation along the lines of guilt and the bomb, but in some of the side story for Doc Brown and Back to the Future, he was on the Manhattan Project as well, and. You almost wonder if he invented the time machine subconsciously because he wanted to undo that. Yeah. I'm sorry, that did, you kind of what you were saying about that before. Oh, it made God. me think of like, sure, he he understands. He tells Marty all the time about the rules of not being able to change time, but on some level, that has to be the reason why he invented it and like Marty's childlike exuberance and innocence to what you would use a time machine for is clearly covering up some other really important reason than just scientific curiosity for why he would have right after creating the helping to create the atomic bomb suddenly have this idea that would allow you to go back in time no that's my fan reading of it no that's actually a wonderful fan reading too because it's um i don't know if you remember this but that was like supposed to be the original ending right was where they were supposed to go to was it was it a nuke bomb test or was it just the trinity site was it i think it was supposed to be the trinity site 
so yeah oh my god yeah so it's like they finally they like wrap that back in but it's like instead of just needing the plutonium or whatever from there to like get marty home right. like this whole other aspect of it too to the like, idea of putting yeah. the genie back in the bottle and also just the idea that like uh doc brown is like a pariah by the time you get to the 80s yes and it's like if he's the one scientist that like dissented that dropped out of the Manhattan Project to go create a time machine to undo the Manhattan Project. Like... The implication is very yeah. interesting. And uh, especially considering that it went from being that to a romantic comedy involving incest. Yeah. Which, that's a whole other discussion for another day, but it's the beauty of sci-fi. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's really great. Yep, side thoughts. Hashtag side thoughts. Hashtag side thoughts. Um, do you want to do recommended reading? I'd love to. Um, I want to start with animated. Um, it's kind of hard not to. I'm going to go with, uh, Spirited Away by Miyazaki, uh, animated by Studio Ghibli for its, uh, the themes of consumption and capitalism and dehumanization in Japan. There's a quote from that that I really liked, which is, if you don't get a job, you Baba will turn you into an animal. And it's sort of marrying the old sort of myths with this current idea of, of uh, cultural identity and usefulness in society. So that was that was my first one. Second one is another animation, Paranoia Agent, directed by Satoshi Kon and produced by Madhouse. And it's all about, or at least in the director's words, um, Japan's identity being changed by the dropping of the bomb and being changed by a culture of consumerism. Some of the themes touched on it are using tragedy as an excuse or using tragedy as a transcendent, you know, making the decision on which which side of it you want to use, whether you want to wallow in it or whether you want to use it as something to help with change. Mm -hmm. And specifically, there's a lot of different stories in it that sort of interweave, but the main character in that is the designer of a Hello Kitty-like phenomena that represents at least according to the writer-director, uh, this idea of weird childlike innocence that was sort of embraced uh, post-cultural change that kind of represented a more packageable and ultimately, I don't, I don't know, an ineffable creature that sort of can take away hopes and, and also fears. You know what I mean? It's sort of like a central idea of the whole thing is this idea of monsters being hidden to prevent mass paranoia and that's you know i like that no it's no yeah just keep and that's a another thing where it's like i wonder about this where it's like we got to keep the monsters quiet but it's like if this is symptomatic of a society like there's only so many yeah, things some, that you're preventing yeah you know you can yeah you can only hush this up for so long and if this is not a symptom but a cause it's hard to say which you know what i mean like mm. The story implies that this guy is just in a series of people doing this, and they're basically just plugging the leaks and doing damage control. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's good, Rex. That's that's animation. And then for Western films, I wanted to mention uh, The Stuff, which is a horror movie written and directed by Larry Cohen, the writer of 1993's Body Snatchers. Nice. Uh, it's a satirical comedy body horror about Western consumerism in the vein of Body Snatchers. The idea being this company begins selling this yogurt, and when people eat it, it turns them into mind-controlled monsters. And the story is ridiculous. It's meant to be satirical. But 
when people eat this yogurt, they can't stop eating it. And when they can't get the yogurt anymore, they start attacking people. And it fits very well into the themes of what we were talking about. About uh, Basically, this, this yogurt ends up being stuff from space that some company found and started selling. <laughs> which is ridiculous again, yeah. but also sounds slightly plausible. It does, yeah. And people were so compelled to eat this thing, and it was eating them inside of themselves, and they didn't even know it. See, and it's it's actually one of the greatest like um, movie posters ever. Is the poster for that movie? No doubt about that. Just like the face with its like mouth open, the glowing green stuff inside. I watched that movie at an age when I probably shouldn't have watched that movie. <laughs> I will tell you that, and that movie cover haunted me every time I went past it. <laughs> Blockbuster. There's some movies that I watched specifically because their covers were so disturbing. Like, oh, yes. I'm like, I can't walk by this anymore being afraid of it. I have to watch the movie. That's why I watch Nothing But Trouble. I thought that... <laughs> I, 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 I won't be scared anymore by you, Ackroyd! <laughs> Not anymore! Uh, um, I have two other recommendations. I'll, let me finish off film. Uh, Wes Craven's People Under the Stairs, which is a Reagan-era allegory about capitalism consumption and... It's got, the characters in it are, or at least the bad guys, are an incestual uh, brother and sister bad guys called Mommy and Daddy who are hiding children under them stair- the stairs that are ultimately eating each other and becoming cannibals. Um, I really wanted to recommend mm-hmm. that one just because it's got a lot of the same themes and I love Reagan era horror, um, especially when it's meant to be about Reagan. Yeah. And then finally for TV, the recent season of Sci-Fi's Channel Zero, Butcher's Block, which had eldritch horror and one of the main characters being offered immortality, but only if she were to eat human flesh. And too repulsed by eating other people's flesh, she decided to cut off and eat her own. Which, uh... yeah, it's got great it's got great themes involving in this. It's got a lot of references to um, Eraserhead and a lot of Lynchian horror in it, but it's also got a lot of Lovecraftian horror as well. Uh, I would give that a high recommend. That's always good, yeah. Oh, was it? Um, that's nice. Is it? I got a cup, and you, since you dropped Lovecraftian, I'm going to just drop a Lovecraft. Yes. Um, like, uh, there's this short story that he wrote called The Strange Case of Arthur German, and his, or the case regarding Arthur German and his family, and that's... Uh, that's about a guy who um, commits suicide. Who commits suicide by self-immolation um, once he discovers that he is uh, the child of a, uh, that he is the the grandchild, the the descendant of like an ancient like humanoid man ape type thing, and he's a very weird looking dude. So, and all the entire family has this really weird dark savagery inside. That, like, by the time it gets down to Arthur German and he figures out just exactly where all this negativity in his family is coming from, just can't deal anymore, so... He, too, faces the animalistic void mm-hmm. inside. Exactly. But he has a more definitive horror origin for it that he can't handle. Exactly. And it's, uh... So there's that, um... Really weirdly, a soft recommended Dune. Uh, the yeah. one Like, if you could do... Like, if you could take Dune and just focus on one character... Um, there's the character of Hazimir Fenring in Dune, who is, like, the Emperor's cousin and his best assassin. And he's, like, he's a pretty cool dude. He, like, makes appearances throughout the first Dune book. And 
Um, like Paul Atreides, he is probably a Kwisatz Haderach, but because he's sterile, they never let him take the water of life. So he never, he never gets the thing that Paul gets, where he takes this drug and it just, or he takes the water of life, converts it, and is able to see the past, present, and future, and see all of space and time. Um, but Hazemir Fenring, uh, being denied that. Uh, his powers grow inward. Like he manages to figure out like how to shield himself from prescience. And but basically, yeah, it's the it's the difference between your being being like encouraged in your environment to really flourish and blossom as one is, um, when you don't get that, you turn it inwards. Right. And I feel like Hazemir Fenring is pro- like a more positive version of this protagonist, just because Hazemir Fenring also doesn't like people very much. Like, he hates people, he hates the machinations that he's caught around. Caught around. It's just where he is. Like Right. And it's all about the difference in direction that that otherness takes you in, or that that exploration takes you in, based on what you've been given or denied. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's just as uh, um, relevant, in fact, even more relevant type of exploration is the one inward. Like, you know... I think you used the word uh, um, Loganaut at one point, and I really like that. I like the idea of just spelunking into your own being and trying to understand this thing called sentience. And Yeah, I, I love all these terms like Logonaut and ethno, Ethnonaut, and, uh, you know, there's so many different versions of it that you can use. Uh, psychonaut, mm-hmm. this idea of exploring inward especially considering if you take the idea of how many of brain cells to stars in the sky and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, and we are all made of star stuff, isn't the in- inwards exploration every bit as valid and vast and expansive as the one outward? Mm-hmm. Maybe even more so because of the way it shapes our own reality tunnel and understanding of all of reality? Exactly. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And it's I feel like this story kind of... like it's it, The story features a man who like shows us that path but then very clearly rejects it because of his like single-minded like obsession with being both him the eater and the eaten. Like the in the self-hatred, I feel like also really gets in the way of like coming to any real conclusion. Right. Unless it's like a transcendent transhuman conclusion that he gets brought to. He mentions the idea of eating your enemies, but I think that eating your enemies carries with it a sort of reverence and Mm. maybe even love of your enemy, understanding your enemy, absorbing your mm. enemy. It's not really the same as doing this process for, through self-hatred, yeah. which is what was burning the fire that made him do it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, what was it? That's um, that. My last recommend would probably be, probably be Kafka's The Hunger Artist. Nice. Uh, it's about a guy who locks himself in a cage and fasts for entertainment purposes. And, a lot of uh, good parallels. A lot of very good parallels. Yeah, it's it basically yeah like the um, putting the self and your own malnourishment or your own like cyclical nourishment on display uh, to a, an uncaring society, right? Or to a society that doesn't know quite what to do with the weird thing that you brought it. Which fits very well also into previous episodes, Omalos and uh, um, We Who Are About To as well. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah, definitely for We Who Are About To, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Maybe it's not science fiction. Maybe we should do it at some point. We'll, we'll figure it out later. Okay, we'll have to figure it out. Um, I only had one more thing that I wanted to bring up. Do it. I just typed in on Google, Japanese cook, and the third is 
cooks his own testicles. Oh, thank goodness for Google. There, I love it. It's what else were people searching for? There was a um, a chef in uh, Tokyo. Uh, this was in 2012. A guy named uh, Mao Sugiyama, uh, who has described himself as um, asexual, uh, after his 22nd birthday, decided to go through elective genital removal surgery. So he had his testicles removed, and then uh, had uh, six diners uh, come to a $250 a plate feast to sit down and eat the testicles freshly prepared. You literally can't make this up. You can't. This literally happened. Uh, he went, uh, was it, he invited six people, um, but only five showed up. Uh, the six, I guess, got squeamish. Go figure. Yeah. So, um... Sounds like something out of Hannibal. Yeah, no, so there's there's a weird part of me, too, where it's like, I know that this isn't, like... This is definitely not, uh, um, representative of Japanese culture as a whole, but I think it's no. interesting, because it's like, after we read this story, I thought of that, that case, where I was just like, Jesus. I mean, the story, just to touch on that really quickly, what I think it ties into more is this idea of maybe body dysmorphism, or, mm. or you know, where people are like... They want to get rid of an arm yeah. or, you know what I mean? It's like they feel like their body's wrong or something mm -hmm. like that. But it, 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 our protagonist had it taken to the extreme yeah. for that. And, then, and it's, it's interesting to me, too, because it's like I had a dancer who I dated a few years ago um, told me one of the most interesting things that I'd ever heard. And it was namely that um, you shouldn't think of parts of your body as being the bad part. Like, you know, you're like, oh, that's my bad leg, because right. uh, psychosomatically, you will make it your bad leg. Right. So it's like with this guy, like, he, he does just look physically at his body as some as an obstacle, and not not an instrument, not a vehicle, or... Right. Not himself. Uh, but yeah, so that's... Uh, you hungry? Oh, I am starving. Get the butter ready, oh and get God. the diamond-tipped scalpel, because I'm ready uh, to go. Yes. Uh, we're going to do some rotisserie style roasting. Um, Dibs. Yeah. We'll just, <laughs> uh, we're going to, uh, well, we'll just see which of us makes it to next week's episode. Like my bet is on just one eyeball for me. Yeah. Lately one, one eyeball to the brain. I, I'm like, I'm seeing like an arm, maybe like half my face. Can I leave the part of the brain that like doesn't feel self-conscious about things? Like, is that a part of the brain I can just leave behind and then eat? Separately from that would be else. that would be amazing. I would when you start eating your brain, which should, you should probably remove the bit that feels shame first. <laughs> Mom, this is a good point. I need to put priorities here. Do I want to feel shame last, or do I want to taste my own brain jelly? It's it's really important to make the priorities for this. Yeah. Well, folks, uh, this has been a wonderful trip through the mirror zone. Uh, be sure to check us out in a couple of weeks when we'll be doing part two. Part two. Uh, Tensei Kona. Yes. Uh, Tensei Kono's Triceratops, which uh, should be fun. Yeah, and uh, you'll definitely come away from it feeling like you saw a ghostly Triceratops. I know I did. Oh, yeah, me too. Yep. All right, so uh, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah, through the mirror zone, though. We'll see you through that. We will see you through the mirror zone. Ciao. Good night.